Hello everybody, Jason here from the At The Coalface podcast. I've created a new sub-series called Mentoring Moments, and Mentoring Moments is composed of clips taken from my one-on-one and group mentorship sessions where we discuss e-commerce, digital, retail, and so much more. Hopefully you get a lot out of this. Enjoy. Andrew, jump in there. Yeah, it's thank you for, I don't know how long these, these mentor sessions have been going, but obviously I've been chatting with you on LinkedIn for probably a while now and I keep an eye on your verbiage and stuff. So thanks, mate, for doing this. So say, is it part of the question? It does a little bit. Is that, yeah, like, like I see, I'm not sure you mentioned Salesforce, but I know that they're like on a hiring freeze. They've laid off quite a few people. A number of months ago, Shopify did the same thing. Pretty much most tech vendors, I work in tech. I'm also a salesperson, but I'll try and leave the ego at the door. And uh, it's just generally about, I suppose, like the economy situation, right? About the, but more so about the impact it's having on the consumer behavior and how are retailers and brands, and maybe even let's say tech, tech brands, how are they What are you seeing? How are they adapting? And just from what I've read, and I'm I'm here to learn, is that, you know, if prices are going up for goods to buy, consumers are naturally being a lot more careful or cautious regards to what they're buying, when they're buying, how they're buying. And that's naturally having a byproduct on for Unita, which is companies are having to lay people off because in essence, people aren't, let's say, buying as much. I guess the question is probably there's quite a few in there, but we could start off with what kind of consumer behaviors are we seeing? Is it as simple as what I've just said, or is it getting a lot more complex? And what are people doing in market to, to suit, to meet consumers where they are? Yeah, I think from my perspective, what I'm seeing is that a lot of the biggest tech companies in the world are using the current economic high inflation environment, low VC funding environment, they're using it as somewhat of an excuse in in certain respects to execute rifts. So reduction in force, seeing that the earnings reports from the majors, the, the earnings are still strong. We're seeing inflation remain at very elevated levels across the world. And that tells me that demand is still strong. Central banks around the world are trying to kill demand through rising interest rates, but they haven't been able to do it yet. At least certainly haven't been able to do it in a meaningful fashion. So the Fed has signaled that very hawkish comments that they're going to continue to raise interest rates until they can get a handle on inflation. And being the world's reserve currency, what that is meaning is that the trickle-down effect in the rest of the world is that the USD is rising faster in value because of rising interest rates than the rest of the currencies. And in fact, down here in our part of the world, obviously the NZD and AUD have been absolutely crucified. You might as well call them the South Pacific peso at this stage. And uh, so seeing global effects of America and their moves to fight inflation, and there's a, there's a whole lot of politics surrounding the Fed and whether they're independent or not, they're privately owned. There's a whole lot of politics around that. And I would argue that the Fed left interest rates far too low for far too long. And they actually sowed the seeds of inflation many years ago. The seeds of inflation were sown after the GFC many years before that. But really, the significant seeds of inflation with the zero interest rate policy, ZERP, after the GFC, and then, of course, keeping interest rates low throughout COVID to, to bail out and give subsidies to lots of businesses and individuals. Those seeds were sown through massive money printing by the Fed during that time, and everybody else around the world was basically following their lead. Now, the Fed is trying to ratchet up interest rates to rein in out-of-control rampant inflation because buying power is being decreased. But what we're seeing is that the 
it's taking a lot longer for those raised interest rates to affect consumer behavior than what perhaps central banks would like and certainly than what everybody suspected. And we're still seeing buying. We had a new Costco open up just five minutes down the road from us less than a month ago. And the line is literally, it's around the block. It's literally around the block. People are just chopping their faces off. And you go to the malls, at least here in Auckland, and they're packed. And so I'm just not seeing, and this is all anecdotal, I understand, but when we combine the anecdotal things that we're hearing from the market around the world, combined with continuing high inflation, combined with stronger, strong earnings by most companies, sure, some have been slammed. Meta's been slammed. Snap has been slammed. Some of these tech companies have been slaughtered, absolutely, no doubt about it. And it's showing up in their share price. But then other big tech companies, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Teslas, they've all done amazingly well. And so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing inflation is likely to stay higher and elevated for much longer than anyone could have suspected. And it's going to take longer than what we thought for those higher interest rates to bite into the wealth effect that's been created. If you bought a house in the last couple of years, at least in New Zealand, and I know it's similar to most major parts of Australia, you feel rich because the value of your house has doubled in the last five or six years or whatever it is. So the reality is people still feel immensely wealthy because of the additional equity in many cases that they've built up in their properties that they've built over the last few years. But for people that have a mortgage and very large mortgage, those interest rates will inevitably eventually, especially when they come off of fixed rate mortgages. And we, we don't benefit from the mortgage market that the Americans have. The Americans run very, very typically fixed rate mortgages for 30 years. So people can, they can lock in their mortgages for 30 years. You can't do that in Australia and New Zealand. You can maybe lock in for five, maybe. It's usually a three to five lock-in and then it goes to variable rate. And so there are a lot of people in New Zealand and Australia who are locked into these historically low rates and they're going to be coming off and they're going to be going to floating over the next one, two, three, four years, I've seen some statistics of the numbers of people that will be coming off fixed rate, at least in New Zealand, and they are pretty horrific. And once those people do start feeling the actual effect of borrowing costs going through the roof, and they're seeing their mortgage go up by 20, 30, 40, 50%, the mortgage costs go up, mortgage servicing costs go up, I think that's when we'll start to see significant moves in, in consumer behavior. But until then, and while people still have these low interest rates, it's unlikely to have a significant change in the very short term. Okay. So I was like thinking about that Costco. Not surprised. Costco is buy bulk, get cheap. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense, right? It's an investment of maybe what people are seeing. But in essence, there hasn't, you're saying there hasn't been that significant uh, a shift yet to really say that consumers are being a lot more, I guess, cautious or scrutiny on spending their money on generally most things? Look, I think there's around the margins, there's been some impacts on discretionary spending, consumer discretionaries, certainly. And some people are forced to reallocate some of their income to staples and the mortgage servicing and everything else. They're, they're fi they've got certain household fixed overheads that in some cases they're having to reallocate funds to. Absolutely no question about that. But certainly what we're seeing in terms of even the annual, the quarterly earnings reports by some of the major mall owners and everything else, we're, we're just not seeing yet, not seeing the same environment even that we saw in the early stages of the GFC. We're just not seeing credit markets freeze up yet. We're not seeing, we're not seeing the bond market freeze up yet, where the borrowing costs by nation states are going through the roof as well. Because let's remember that the borrowing costs for the 
treasuries of our respective countries, when they issue bonds, what's happening is that the central banks are buying those bonds, right? And so what we're seeing is we're seeing the borrowing costs go up for each of these nations. And so it was very cheap for America and other countries to run massive deficits for the last decade plus. It's been super cheap for them to run deficits because interest rates were near zero. So they could spend, they could borrow and spend and print like money was going out of style. But those costs are going to go through the roof. So I think we're going to see that that word that we heard during the GFC austerity that we kept hearing from the BRICS nations and everywhere else, we're going to start hearing it from every country. We're going to start hearing about austerity. We're going to start hearing about cutbacks and in health and education. We're going to we're just going to continue to hear about that because government borrowing costs are going through the roof in line with rising interest rates for consumer debt. And these countries had the luxury, and particularly America, because she exports a good chunk of her inflation to the rest of the world. That's the luxury of being the world's reserve currency. When we all have to trade internationally in USD, it soaks up a lot of the money that they print in international trade and also in foreign reserves. So our country, New Zealand, Australia, we hold massive amounts of USD bonds, the treasuries as part of our national reserves. We have to for international trade. And so I, I think that America has the luxury of being able to export her inflation in ways that our countries do not. And so therefore our borrowing costs are going to be more affected. And so therefore our inflation is likely to be even more stubborn for longer than America because we don't have the luxury of exporting our inflation to other countries via our currencies. So there's a lot of major macroeconomic shoes to drop, I think. But do I think we're at the bottom, for example, on the S&P? Who really knows? It's hard to say. It, it could drop another pretty easily drop another 20% from here, but it's also had a massive bull run. For the last eight or nine years, we've had this incredible bull run. There's a lot of wealth effect built up there. Most people are still in the green on their portfolios. If they, unless they started investing in the last six months, their portfolios are still in the green. Sure, they've taken maybe a 20% haircut since the beginning of the year, but they're still in the green. It's going to be interesting. There's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. While money was so cheap, a lot of these larger companies took on debt while it was cheap to build up a cash war chest, enter new markets, to develop new products, to do all sorts of things. And there's still massive cash sitting on the sidelines waiting to see where it needs to go next. I think the next six months are going to be pivotal. And if we can get inflation under control, hopefully it'll be a relatively soft landing and a relatively short, sharp recession, but time will tell. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll let someone else ask a question because I have more to extend on a couple of those things, but it's, I'm just conscious of time and sharing. Sure. No worries. No, I appreciate the question. Really good question. And look, I don't have a crystal ball. I'm continuing to invest personally. And I'm going to, on, on one of our next group sessions, I'm going to, so I have my own framework that I've put together. I only invest in ETFs. I never invest in individual stocks. And I have a heavy fa weighting towards index funds, low cost index funds. And what I want to do is I want to, on a future call, I plan to share my framework of vetting the ETFs that I'm looking at potentially investing into. Now, I'm not going to give investing advice. I'm not an investment advisor. But what I want to do is I want to talk through my thinking of how I developed my framework for investing so that when we get into these really, quote unquote, scary economic times, I can unload cognitively my, I have a very clear investment plan. That investment plan was created when the markets weren't in turmoil so that I was thinking really clearly, unemotionally. And that's allowed me to take away some of the emotional investing that some people get caught up in 
when markets are in turmoil. Yeah. Sometimes they they buy health, buy high, sell low because they're emotionally invested in the market, and so they emo- they invest emotionally as opposed to setting up a very clear investment framework and then just continuing to contribute to that over time, regardless of what the markets are doing in the short term. And I think I've done that also in my business. I've created certain consulting frameworks with a very specific goal in mind and with a very specific outcome in mind. And what that means is that the cognitive load on me when I'm doing things like discoveries is decreased because I'm following a very, it's not a rigid process in the sense that it can't be changed and adapted for specific customers, but the process itself is pretty specific and it's pretty detailed. And so what that means is I can better guarantee a specific outcome because I've developed this over a period of time and I've seen these outcomes recur again and again if the same process is followed. And so I think that we can all do that in our personal lives and in our professional lives. We can create decision-making frameworks around all of the key decisions that we need to make in our lives so that when we least have the emotional and mental bandwidth to deal with those decisions, we can fall back on the frameworks that we know work that we know work long-term. And so I'd like to talk through some of my decision-making frameworks, some of my consulting frameworks, turn it over to the group for questions. And I'll probably do that in the next few se- group sessions, start working through some of these things. And then basically that'll set the scene and the context for the questions that I'd like to turn it over to the room for. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, Jason. I think I saw your commenting on a post about that a couple of weeks ago. I think that's a great idea, right? I think no one really think about it, right? I'm almost 40 and I never thought about it. And now looking at all the finance, I'm like, this doesn't look good. But then I think, okay, it took me reaching 40 and have two kids and now realizing this. Had I realized this before? But so I think what you are going to do will be great because I think we need to learn before it, it happens. It's never too late, right? You can always learn something. So I'm just curious, how do you like even get into that kind of, how do you know what like it's just ad hoc learning or how did you get there? Yeah, I'm a very autodidactic learner and I guess I do a lot of research. I read a lot. I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I do a lot of my own research and being a business owner, I think makes it a little bit easier in the sense that I know how to, I know how to read a PL. I know how to understand charts. I have done a lot of reading about technical investing and some of the technical markers. And, but I'm, a, I'm very much a buy and hold investor. I'm not a trader. So I don't, I'm a passive public market investor. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a VC capitalist or anything like that. I don't have enough money to be a VC capitalist. But I think that the, some of the learnings that I've gone through over the last 15 years, for example, they've been just because I've had a hunger to learn. And my parents never, my, my family, my, my dad owned his own business while I was growing up. And so I was exposed to entrepreneurship from a very young age, but my parents never invested in the share market. My parents never had investments outside of the family home and business was really the sole generator of income for our family. And then my parents hold, held whatever extra that they had in cash and cash, as we see, cash is trash. That's the saying. And we're seeing that now more than ever with rising inflation. And if you just leave your money in the bank, you're going to be losing somewhere between 8 and 15% per year in buying power just by staying in cash. So where are you going to put it? Are you going to buy gold and silver, which I also do that? I'm very pretty well diversified and uh, because things very rarely go up and down at exactly the same rate at exactly the same time. So I think by being diversified, it really spreads your risk quite broadly. And so those are some of the things that I've gone through in terms of my research over the last 10, 15 years that have brought me to the investing thesis that works for me and that I'm comfortable with and I can be very confident with and and it doesn't stress me out basically. Matthew, anything you you came to the table with today? Yeah, just waiting patiently. I'm coming from, this question is coming from a B2C side. I know you're more B2B, but with your experience on e-commerce, you might be able to 
shed some light or point me in the right direction. So we, I work at LaVisa, so that's a, a global jewellery company. Yep. Uh, we have seven markets that we're in, seven Shopify stores globally. And I'm noticing that different promotions that we run, sometimes they land really well in one region and then not in another. So I was just wondering any advice on how to figure out what's actually going to, without just testing randomly, how to figure out what's going to work in a specific region or are there sentiments in a region that uh, we can use that to guide our particular promotion. Say, for example, last week was a spend and save offer. Australia, New Zealand killed it. UK just completely flopped. Singapore did okay. South Africa did okay. US didn't like it either. So it's just things like that, wondering how they do that without just randomly testing. Yeah, look, I think it's also about developing a really solid zero and first party data set. And you say that you're running Clavio, but are you running any CDP at the moment at all? Or are you... But only just starting to get set up. So I'm in charge of the CDP. But it's, okay. it's in its infancy. Great. Lexer, I think, is going to be super valuable to you. And Lexer is an amazing platform. It's very good. It's very good at getting quite granular. It's very good at helping you contain costs across paid social in particular, paid media, full stop, Google ads, everything. It's great at helping you contain costs because it allows you to get quite granular with your cohorts that you send across to those platforms to build lookalikes off of. So that's the first thing. And I think you're going you're gonna to see some real value out of running a CDP. But secondarily, what implementing a CDP is going to allow you to do is going to allow you to have a place to dump any zero and first party data that you collect through the front end as customer attributes. And it's going to allow you to take that data is allow you to add it to your segmentation and to your cohorts to where you now are starting to develop cohorts through the lens of knowing a whole bunch of things that you don't know today. For example, when you are creating your cohorts, if you're not creating cohorts based on propensity to discount, then you are fighting with one hand tied behind your back because you don't know, you, you cannot segment based on who buys when something is on sale or who uses a coupon code and de-weighting them out of your cohort data. You also aren't potentially looking at things like what is their return rate? So you don't know. So when you look at the profitability of a customer, you at the moment, you're probably looking at things like total revenue over a period of time, right? And you're saying, okay, who's driving revenue over a period of time for us? And all of the things being equal, revenue is a great metric to look at and see who's most profitable to you or who has the, the best CLV or the best, the best AOV or whatever. But until you start looking at things that also come into play in terms of cost, so what is their CAC? What is their cost to service? So if you're plugging, so do you use a help desk like Gorgeous or something like that in your business as well? We're trying to get onto Gorgeous as Zendesk currently, yeah. Okay, cool. So once you're on Gorgeous, then you'll be able to plumb your Gorgeous data back into the CDP against each customer. So when a customer contacts you, whether it be through live chat, whether it be via phone, whether it be via email, every time they contact you, that can be lodged against their profile in Lexer. And then you'll be able to see, for example, okay, this person contacts us on average 0.5 times per purchase, or this person contacts us an average of three times per purchase. Their preference is live chat. Cool. That has a lower cost to serve than a phone call, or that has a lower cost to serve than email because I can have five live chats going in real time versus I can only deal with one email or one phone call at a time. So you can assign costs to serve by channel inside Gorgeous, and then that information can be plumbed into Lexer. So you're now in Lexer. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to have a much richer data set around your customer. So you're going to know what was their cost of acquisition? What was their cost of service? What's their return rate? So all of the things being equal, if the same, let's say two people 
spend $1,000 with you in a given year and they make the same number of purchases. So for all intents and purposes today, they look like this, they're the same value to you. But one person returns one out of five items to you and the other person returns three out of five items to you. There's a cost, there's a cost to those returns. And so I, I think that by implementing a CDP, and this is a roundabout why, way of getting, I, I'm not shirking the question here. I'm just saying that because you're only running Clavio today, you don't yet have a CDP, it's going to be difficult for you to start gathering really key information about your customer behavior, both in terms of how they interact with your site, because you're going to be gathering a whole bunch of information about what they're doing on site as well. So you're going to know what they've added to cart. You're going to know what they've abandoned. You're going to know what they've added to maybe a wish list. You're going to know what they've added to product compare. You're going to know all this information. You're going to know what categories they visited. You know what product pages they visited. You're going to know so much more about them that you now are going to have a much clearer picture about the differences by market in that information. And so you're going to say, okay, people in the UK on average, for example, they behave in this way, or this is the most common attributes of people in this market. Okay, this is the most common attributes of people operating in the New Zealand market or the Australian market. And so until you can start segmenting your customer data by market, it makes it really hard to try to think strategically about the promotions that you think are actually going to be a hit with that market. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just trying to do the kind of hack together middle thing before before the CDB is properly set up. But I can see what you're saying. Yeah, you got to start start with the data before you before you do that. 100. percent Yeah. And you work and you'll work back from there, right? And yeah. then obviously the cohort data will be created as segments inside Lexer, and then those segments will be pushed over to Clavio, and then obviously from there you can modify the creative for those segments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You, you can then start incentive instead of making a blanket batch and blast that you're doing today, you can get much more granular in who you incentivize to buy through you. And so, for example, today you might say, okay, we're going to have this, we're going to have this pan region, pan customer discount that goes to absolutely everyone. Why would you send that kind of promotion, for example, to a cohort that their propensity to discount is low? So if they 90% plus of the time don't buy on discount, so they don't use a coupon code and they don't buy things that are being discounted, why would you incentivize those customers with a discount? Because you know that they're not as price sensitive as customers. So you might want to do a promotion only to the customers that you, based on the data, are hyper price sensitive. Their propensity di discount is say 80, 90%, then cool. We know that we can pretty much tip them over the line. Most likely we have a better chance of tipping them over the line with a promotion than the customers who are not price sensitive. So why would you want to lose margin on customers that are not price sensitive when you maybe what you're looking to do is to, to tip people over the edge that are super price sensitive? So it's just, I think that especially with the death of third-party cookies coming, I think with all the iOS changes, I think zero and first-party data are the true gold mine for most e-commerce merchants. And they just, they haven't really ever had to think about this stuff before because they've been able to set up the targeting in the ad platforms that they're running ads in. And then they've let the algorithms do the rest. But because the algorithms now don't have the same data to feed on, it's getting harder and harder to contain costs on those platforms unless you are defining and sending the cohort to them to create lookalikes off of. And then I think what you're going to be able to do is you're going to be able to, over time, you're going to be able to improve your UX to gather and incentivize zero and first party data. So I would be looking at platforms like FormToro. I would be looking at platforms like Jebit. I would be looking at those types of platforms that allow you to create 
a similar online experience to what you would in an offline jewelry store in terms of guided navigation and product recommendations. And then what you can do is you can plumb the data that you collect out of those platforms into the CDP against their profile. And then you have a much richer profile with which then not only to target and market to them, but also have a conversation with them and push the appropriate content at the appropriate time to them as part of the overall customer journey, as opposed to just selling to them. So the CDP is going to allow you not just to market better, but it is going to allow you to create a very granular customer experience sample. You might have a different onboarding flow. You might have a different content journey flow via email, depending on the cohort that they fall into. And you'll be able to get really granular with those onboarding workflows in ways that you can't do without a CDP. So I, I think it's going to allow you to improve every facet of your business once it's fully onboarded. Yeah, 100%. And that zero first and third party data is definitely on my roadmap very shortly. We were, we're like a minute away from signing with Prezi. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. They're a Melbourne-based company. Yeah. Yep. So that was part of that first party data collection. And we're thinking about maybe next year, Akendo Connect. They're kind of like micro surveys at certain parts of the customer journey. So there's definitely that in the roadmap. So it's just a matter of fixing all the hygiene before Black Friday at the moment, because we are just onboarding the right e-commerce team to get, take things to the next level. But it's, thank you. It's good, good advice. And I would also go and look at Form Toro in terms of how you get signups, how you collect signups for your newsletter. Form Toro is going to bring a new level of intelligence and a new level of smarts to that subscription process. And it's going to allow you to capture really important first zero, it's actually zero party data. It's going to allow you to collect a significant amount of zero party data as part of that subscription process that you're probably not collecting today. And then it also provides the analytics and intelligence layer over the top of that. I would seriously look into that as well. If you want to really maximize the value of people that are subscribing to you for, for promotions, et cetera, then I would seriously take a look at that. John Ivanko, I've got a podcast episode with him. So go just go, go look up John Ivanko on my podcast. We talk through what Form Toro is and the value that it brings. I make nothing. I'm not a, I'm not a partner or anything of Form Toro. I don't get anything out of this. Just know that John is super smart and he's built a super smart really intelligent platform to help leverage zero party data in ways that no one else is thinking about right now. Wonderful. I'll check that out. Is that the John Ivanka that used to work for life? I don't know who he used to work for. He's a lawyer, as is his wife by trade. Let me just see here. It's John, yeah, J-O-N. That um, sounds familiar, yeah. Uh, so he owns a company called Boone Road. He was a CX advisor at Lattice He was a strategic advisor at CryptoPal uh, and LifeX. Yes. That's right. That's yeah, him. we've met. Yeah, I used to work oh. at LifeX. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So what he's building over there is really impressive, really impressive. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for him because he's really questioning the status quo of zero party data in the market, particularly for e-commerce. He's really one of the only people in the market really thinking about this in a super strategic long-term way. And I really like that Mm -hmm. about him. That's great. I'll check it out. Thanks. Um, Jason. Yeah. Just, I actually had the questions wrote down Anyway, we can use Matthew's example, which uh, just because I'm crap at making stuff up. He's, so he's, he, in essence, he was asking about producing a kind of like not a one size fits all. You're recommending was it, a CDP to segment the data. So he's not offering the same, let's say, offers to Australia than to the UK because they're different people, different markets. And even though we are all humans, we do behave in different ways for various different reasons and environments. Now, pr- probably like the two 
a couple of questions that I have, because I was going to use LaVisa as an example, is the first one is that, okay, you segment the data. And how would you mostly communicate with the customers? And the reason that I ask, I was just recently engaged with a global brand, but their Korean market, and they're basically getting rid of email. It's mm-hmm. almost becoming illegal mm-hmm. to use the email there. Right? And so I know here email is extremely pre- prevalent as it is in most countries. And I like email. Yeah, I, I love email. But I know SMS is creeping in, to be honest. As a consumer, I'm not really a massive fan. I'm just one of 7 billion people in the planet. <laughs> how else w- would you say that, let's say, businesses like LaVisa or, I mean, how should they be reaching out? What medium should they be using? And I say that because the more into Asia that you go, it's, it's like the social channels, the Wii apps and, and whatnot is becoming a lot more prevalent, whereas email is becoming a bit more redundant. I think there's two parts to the answer that I'll provide. And one is that I think marketers have got real lazy around email. And mm-hmm. it's because marketing automation has weaponized email to a degree that it's allowed them to be lazy. And I think this death of third-party cookies and the iOS privacy changes are actually going to benefit marketers in the long term because they will not be able to be lazy anymore. It just is not working. So what I've seen work well. And let's say you're running Clavio. There's companies in the United States, there's companies in New Zealand, there's companies in Australia that do direct mail and they integrate directly with marketing automation, automation platforms like Clavio. Then we've got SMS. Sometimes Clavio is now dealing with SMS in almost every country around the world. So what we're seeing is a blend of mediums as part of the marketing automation workflows starting to work really well. So what we're seeing is mixing as part of, say, an onboarding flow mixing email, SMS, and direct mail, say, for example, a postcard working really well because people are not expecting as part of an onboarding flow to necessarily receive a postcard. But if it's just as easy to drop in a postcard node in your Klaviyo workflow as it is to drop in an email waypoint in the flow, and it's just as easy to drop an SMS endpoint into the flow, then it makes it easier for marketers to think about creative ways to mix up the mediums that they're using for messaging. And then obviously, if you've gotten permission to contact them through Messenger, if you've got permission to contact them through WhatsApp, if you've got permission to contact them through these other channels, then I think eventually Klaviyo and the other marketing automation platforms, they'll get there so that that blend proliferates so that we're not using just the email channel for our comms. We're sending them out to other channels, right? Because once you've got the SMS node or the capability inside, for example, Klaviyo to send SMSs, now you've got the ability to send those same short messages to WhatsApp or to Messenger or to Instagram DM, right? So as and where the customer spends their time and the ways in which they want to be contacted, so long as we get permission and we explain to them the value that they're going to get out of those channels uniquely, if they allow us to contact them through those channels, then they're usually going to say yes. But it it requires us to be more thoughtful as business owners, marketers, practitioners. It requires us to be more thoughtful about the journeys that we're creating instead of batch and blast. And I'm still seeing a significant, and I'm talking a significant number of merchants batch and blast their messaging. And it's just crap. It's just, it's just, it's really unexcusable in today's market to batch and blast email or any other contact form 
format. It is just crap. It's a crap user experience. It's a crap customer experience to batch and blast. Even down to the point of the other key touch point that I think is going to become more leveraged is browser push notifications as part of marketing automation workflows. So today they're disjointed, right? So let's say you're running push engage on your website. That is completely independent of Klaviyo today or your marketing automation tool. They shouldn't be because I want to be able to control the total number of messages and mediums that my customers get contacted and communicated through. But if I'm smashing them independently by a browser push notification, I'm smashing them independently via SMS, I'm smashing them independently of via email and other mediums, and the customer doesn't have the ability to have any say or input in that contact, or I don't have the ability to throttle the communications based on total touch points over, say, a week period. I don't want my contact, my customer, for example, to be contacted more than bloody once a week, absolute maximum. So if I've emailed them, I don't want to give them a browser push notification. I don't want to send them SMS. I don't want to do all these other touch points, right? Unless they contact me, unless they reach out to me and they reach out to customer service. So I think all of these technologies are going to have to get smarter and they are slowly getting smarter, but marketers also need to be more thoughtful. And I think those are the two, I think those are the two takeaways for this. And I think that there was another piece I was going to get into, but it's just slipped my mind. It'll eventually come back to me and I'll give you my thoughts on that too. Uh, the second question, even though one, I'd love us to talk more about batch and blast at, at some stage. But the second one was just reiterating on, and I'm using Matthew as an example, his company, the Visa, they were jewelers. I looked on the website. He seems very, I think he's a CRM manager. He's very e-com online centric. I'm assuming they have stores, assuming, I don't know if they do, but the general is that, and traditionally, unless you're pure play, is that the store's revenue and reach far, maybe outweigh the online. Now, something that I heavily get involved in and something that I live myself because is the impact of websites driving in-store purchase just recently or boxing gloves from Rebel Sports. But naturally, I used the website to find out which ones that I actually liked. But say, unfortunately, I don't like shopping in store that much. I had to go try them on because I have funky hands. And what do you see in that market? How powerful are websites at driving in-store traffic, in-store sales? What's, what generally do you, what are your thoughts on that? And any metrics around it? What we do see, at least in global, global ag- aggregate data down to country level, is we see that in New Zealand, e-commerce is only about 10% of total retail. In Australia, it's about 15%. In America, it's about 20%. In the UK, it's about 30%, roughly, give or take. And so UK is the most advanced country in the Western world in terms of e-commerce as a, to- as a percentage of total retail. So certainly retail is still absolutely the lion's share of retail spend, full stop, in in the entirety of the Western world. 70% or better in the Western world is physical retail. But you're right. What we're seeing is we're seeing bleed over from online into offline and vice versa. And what I'm not seeing is leveraging the website platform in store as much as brands could. So I'll give you a really simple example. I don't yet know a single retailer in Australia or New Zealand that is using the using QR codes, which everybody knows how to use now because, of course, because of COVID, everybody's using QR codes now. They've got QR code scanners on their phones. They know how to use them now. 
I have not seen brands do something as simple as in the middle of an aisle for those category of products on that aisle, print up and laminate and put up a QR code in the middle of that aisle, see more air fryers, see our full range, see whatever that goes to the category landing page of the products of that range on the website. So obviously in store, they can generally not show their full range. They can show maybe a very, sub, a very small subset of their range. They, can, they can't merchandise the information around those products in store as well as they can online. And so I don't see that I see a lot of brands trying to push people in store through click and collect and through shared shopping carts and all sorts of other things that drive people in store from the website. But I don't see a lot of pushback the other direction. And I think that's a massively missed opportunity because what you're able to do in terms of cross sales, upsells, product recommendations, reviews, product detail, imagery, and range, you are able to do so much more online than you are in store. And so I would like to see brands get really smart. And this doesn't mean they need to go and spend millions of dollars on digital shelf LCD screens or pricing tags. That doesn't mean they need to go and do that. But what it does mean is being thoughtful about the areas of crossover from in-store and online that will actually benefit the customer. And so that means for many brands, okay, uh, maybe I need to implement a membership program like a Prime, that type of model where somebody has to pay to be a member and that's going to make them more sticky. I see that as being much more valuable to a consumer or potentially valuable to a consumer than a simple spend, earn, spend loyalty program. I think most loyalty programs are, are dead men walking, dead women walking. I think that most loyalty programs don't actually generate the loyalty the brands think they do, but what it does do is hemorrhage margin right? Because most of them are not differentiated. If everybody's got the same loyalty program, but just the conversion of points to dollars is slightly different, instead of one point to one dollar, maybe one, one point is 50 cents. Okay. Maybe, is that the only differentiating factor in your loyalty program? It's probably not going to bring a lot of value, but your customers will use it just because it's there, but it's not going to make them any more loyal to you, but you are going to hemorrhage margin as a result of it. But you're not going to have the tangible benefits of a paid membership program. If we think of something like the entertainment book, one of the reasons why the entertainment book gets used so much is because if you're going to be paying 50, 60 bucks for a bloody entertainment book, you're going to want to get your value for money out of the bloody entertainment book. So what do you do? When you think about going out to dinner, the first thing you do is crack open the entertainment book and say, where are we going to go tonight, honey? We're going to, we're going to pick some place that's in the entertainment book because I've spent money for this bloody book. I think that's the same psychology as a membership program versus a loyalty program. If, you, if the customer has no skin in the game in a loyalty program, it's not by definition going to be as sticky as brands think it's going to be. And it's very difficult for brands to differentiate their loyalty programs as well. So I think, I, I think that brands are going to have to undergo a quantum shift in the way that they engage with their customers in order to stay relevant as of 2022 and beyond. Because I tell you, they are going to have to beat the relevancy of Amazon across all of their channels. Otherwise, Amazon is going to continue to eat their lunch and take a bigger and bigger piece of the market share. So what I got from that, and I agree is I firmly believe and agree that online plays a powerful, let's say, medium to driving in-store traffic and sales. You're right. You don't see much on the reverse side. By doing, let's say, that QR code initiative in-store, is that generally what, say, omni-channel means is bringing online to in-store and the other way in-store to online? Is that what that generally means or is it... Or is it I have a feeling it's a lot more complex than that. I think that's one piece of the puzzle. I think if you've got a membership program that works equally in favor of the customer, 
in-store and online, then that's one omni-channel component. And when I was at Health Post, when I first started there and they had their retail store and online, their loyalty programs were totally different. So you could have a, an in-store loyalty program that was run through the Vend Pause, and then you could have the online loyalty program, which was run through the website and never the twain shall meet. So you had completely different loyalty balances depending on the channel. Now that was pretty crap because people wanted to be able to share their balances, whether they shopped online or in store. So one of the first projects I worked on there was to harmonize those, to put a universal system that sat between them, that translated their loyalty between the two systems and their loyalty balance was ultimately stored in the ERP. And that was the central source of truth around the loyalty balance. And then transaction happened in one channel and automatically updated their loyalty balance in the other systems. And so that that's part of it. Also having the same type of promotions, most brands do not run, even if they're omni-channel, meaning they have a loyalty program that works across channels. They've got a similar range across channels. They've got similar, similar pricing across channels. What they don't usually have is the same promotions across channels because the online store, for example, and the online store technology does not speak the same promotional language as the point of sale system. For example, the types of promotions we could run and vend were very different to the types of promotions we could run online because online we could run catalog price rules, shopping cart price rules. We could run category specific promotions. We could run SKU level promotions. We could run, we could require that they input a coupon code. We could have one use per person. We could do all these weird and wonderful sliced and diced rules uh, online that vend only supports a really limited promotional model. And until brands get the wrap their head around the fact that Omnichannel means that the customer is going to get a very similar unified experience regardless of the channel they choose to engage with you through. That is, you haven't really achieved true Omnichannel until they are able to access the same products, access the same pricing, access the same promotions, access their loyalty or their membership program, access all those benefits of engaging with you until you're able to carry those across and until you, for example, I think ultimately through NFC and through light-based notifications inside of a store, what I ultimately want to see is if I've got a shopping cart at home that I add five items to my shopping cart, and then I open up my app in your store, I want to be guided by light to the place in the store where those items are. I don't want to go hunt for them. I want to have a go to that. I want to be guided almost like my Uber. I want to be guided to the place in the store where those items are at. I want to be directed directly to them. And I think that there are lots of instances where these types of unified wish list and shopping cart and all these things, they're not translating between online and off very seamlessly at all. And I would like to see people working in the stores if they're coming and giving you assistance. I'd like to see them all have iPads. I'd like to see them all have your details if you're willing to give it to them and say, hey, look, I'm going to add this to your cart for you. So that way, if you choose to buy it at home, then it's already in your cart saved for you or it's saved to your wish list or whatever the case may be. I just think there's so many opportunities to enrich the experience on both sides of the equation, the online and the offline experience. I think there's ways to enrich with data going both directions that brands just aren't executing on today at all. Uh, and the last thought, uh, and then we're almost out of time. When you mentioned loyalty, and the loyalty programs that are happening uh, and say i'm not a member of many loyalty programs i think virgin velocity is probably my only one yeah and yeah it, it does buy my advocacy i really do hunt down flights with either virgin or their partners so i can earn points 
Yeah. Do you generally what do what I mean across the decom retailers and brands? What are generally the loyalty programs look and sound like? Is it typically here's some points for buying? You can use those points to buy more stuff. So instead of this, let's say t-shirt costing a hundred dollars, you can pay some of it with your points and you can pay some of it with your cash. So actually it's only costing you $60 and because you're paying $40 of it in points. Is that typically the loyalty program that, that you're seeing? It's buy from us, get points, and you can spend those points with us at a later stage. And usually within a time delimited time. So three months, six months, 12 months, and then the points expire if you don't use them with us. That's the most common. And occasionally they'll do something, mix it up a little bit. Like they might say, okay, you get free shipping. If once you go over a certain threshold, you go into free shipping, or we have this gold, silver, bronze type of model, whereby your annual spend will put you, if you spend a certain amount with us over a 12 month rolling period, then it puts you into a certain tier and you get certain benefits. Like maybe you get free priority shipping versus free regular shipping, or you get, or you get free shipping full stop, or your free shipping threshold comes down, or this different permutations of this because shipping is such a big lever within online businesses. It's such a big conversion lever that usually there's a component of shipping associated with a loyalty program. But again, for the most part, most brands have real difficulty differentiating their loyalty program. And they have real difficulty coming up with tangible benefits that make it worthwhile to join the program, stay active in the program, and actually receive tangible benefits. And if I think about somebody, if I think about somebody like Kathmandu, I think they're very good at their loyalty program is free to join. Their summit club is free to join, but there's some pretty tangible benefits to it. And they're one of the only brands that I think is doing a pretty good job with their summit club. Now, they'll have summit club days where you, where when they're having a promotion, for example, let's say a promotion is going to start on the 1st of October, five days prior or two days prior, Summit Club members can come in and they can get those promotions before all the sizes sell out and get picked over. But you have to show your Summit Club card or you have to quote your phone number or whatever to show that you're in the Summit Club to, to get to have access to those promotions. So it's like a, like an event, like yes. a, an exclusive only event. For people Correct. that naturally you have to be a certain type of person to to go to these with Kathmandu. I'm not much of a hiker or a mountain person and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, it's like they've created a, I would say, an outdoors club. Yep. Where other like-minded people can get together and talk about their outdoors adventure and yep. stories and get exclusive access to innovation in that space. So that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. And what I think they do is, for example, they might bring in an expert rock climber or they might bring in an expert yeah. whatever. And then you can go in after the store closes in the mm -hmm. evenings. You might have a presentation from someone. You might have them help you pick your gear, help recommend specific gear for you and basically act as a consultant for you based on that shared interest. And there's other activities that they do. And what they're really trying to do, exactly as you say, they're trying to build a community of like-minded people that share a similar passion and then adding value in any way that they can other than transactional value. So what happens is a lot of loyalty programs are predicated on transactions. They're not predicated on community and experience. They're predicated on a transactional engagement. And yeah. this is the thing, right? I think community is going to become much more important moving forward. And particularly as we start to slowly move into the metaverse, community is going to be the most important thing. Yeah, it's almost like loyalty clubs are trying to buy advocacy, but where Kathmandu, they're inspiring advocacy. 100%. Um, and in the long run, because we're getting smarter, let's say, is that you can't buy us. You need yes. to earn. 100% right? correct. 100% yeah. correct.
This is way better than LinkedIn chat, by the way. <laughs> That's so good. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Look, that, that was my whole vision behind wanting to start these sessions was because we can have more long form chats than we can through text messaging. Hey, yeah, I can imagine your inboxes. This is way better. I've learned way more than I ever thought. Maybe I hogged more of your time or people I don't know, but I, um, I just want to say thank you so much. You're a good lad and uh, you, uh, you are a good lad. If you'd like to register for free for the mentor sessions with Jason Greenwood, head over to greenwoodconsulting.net, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page and click Get Mentored by Jason. See you there.